Well, happy Easter, church. I'm so glad that you decided to tune in to worship with us on this Easter Sunday. I hope you had a wonderful day already. And I'm excited about what God is doing in the life of our church. I'm excited that you've been able to tune in and worship with us online. And all of those that have been able to join us in person as well, God is moving both digitally and in person. And it's exciting to see what he's doing. Exciting to see how he's working in our church through your generosity, as you just saw in the video previously, how he's bringing together the worship teams from all over this city and other cities and other countries to worship together to create something powerful that is celebrating who God is. And I'm excited to share this message with you today, this Easter Sunday message about the resurrection. And I actually want to jump right into the message by sharing with you the title. And it may sound a little bit different maybe from a previous Easter sermon if you've heard one before, but the title is this, The Resurrection Makes Emotional Sense. The Resurrection Makes Emotional Sense. You're going to see what I mean by that as we move throughout this sermon where we're going to be locating ourselves in the book of 1 Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul to the church that was living in Corinth. We're going to be in chapter 15 and looking at some of the verses about what the Apostle Paul says about the resurrection, that it does in fact make emotional sense. But listen to what he says here in verse 17. In chapter 15, book of 1 Corinthians chapter 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, And you are still in your sins. Easter Sunday is the day that we, the church, celebrate, acknowledge, proclaim that Jesus has risen from the dead. Here in verse 17, the Apostle Paul says that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, if there was no resurrection, we are still in our sins. And everything we believe, all of our faith, is futile. See, here's the synopsis of Christianity. The synopsis of what we believe is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is fully God and fully man. He is divine yet without sin, tempted in every way as we are, experiencing the difficulties and the complexities and the adversity of this life, and yet being divine without sin. We actually speak about Jesus and how he arrived into our existence as a child. And we celebrate that on Christmas, that he was conceived within a virgin, Virgin Mary. And there's some interesting language around this, about how we speak about Jesus and his birth. We say that he was begotten from the Father. Not created, but begotten. That's important. Because to create something is to make something new. To beget something is to make something or to, to, to make something out of the same essence of yourself. So for instance, we as human beings, we beget human babies. Birds beget human birds. And when we say that Jesus was begotten of the Father, We understand why it was necessary for him to be born of a virgin because he was not created by God the Father through a normal conception of a man and a woman. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit within a virgin, Virgin Mary, begotten of the Father, the same essence, 
of the same kind. And he was born, Son of God, fully God, fully man, who lived a perfect life. A life without sin. A life that we cannot live. See, we are not begotten of God. We are made in the image of God, but yet we are created by God. We are not of the same essence. Therefore, we are incapable of living a perfect life. Unlike Jesus, who was begotten of God, who lived the perfect life in our stead. We believe that Jesus lived the perfect life, Son of God, and that his mission for his life was actually to go to the cross, as we celebrated two days ago on Good Friday, to lay down his life willingly for our sake so that our sin might be paid for, that our shame and our guilt might be paid for, and that death might be defeated. And that Jesus, as this perfect Son of God who gave his life on the cross, was buried in the tomb for three days and came forth on the third day, alive, risen, resurrected, signaling to us that in fact he was the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has defeated death and sin. That in fact our sin and our shame and our guilt was buried with him in death for all eternity. That is what we proclaim. That is what we say. And oftentimes what you'll hear in the church, I actually want you to respond at home, is we will say, Christ is risen. And you respond, he's risen indeed. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. That is what we proclaim. And the Apostle Paul says here in verse 17, if he wasn't risen, if Easter Sunday is not true, Resurrection Sunday then all of our faith, everything I just said about Jesus as Son of God, born of a virgin, begotten from the Father, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, all of that is meaningless. Because He would be a dead, self-proclaimed Savior. Not the actual Savior. The resurrection is everything. It reveals to us who Jesus is. That he was, in fact, who he said he was. And that is why we celebrate. That is why we proclaim. That is why we are excited on Easter Sunday to experience that afresh and anew. We echo the words of the Apostle Paul as he says this in verse 20 through 22. Same chapter. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that is Adam, first book of the Bible in Genesis, who sinned against God, created by God, remember. Sinned against him, not of the same essence. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The resurrection of Christ reminds us that not only was Jesus Christ who He said He was, the Savior, the Messiah who has come to save us and who has in fact opened up a way through faith in Him, through His death and resurrection, but that we in fact are also made alive in Christ. That we will be resurrected because death has been defeated for us. And as the Apostle Paul says, we believe that this is a fact. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, you may think to yourself, whether you are going to church every single week, maybe you are exploring Jesus for the first time in a long time tonight, maybe the first time ever, 
You may be thinking, how do you know it is a fact that Jesus was raised from the dead? See, my faith is founded on two things. And I would hope the same is true for you. My faith is founded on reason and experience. It makes logical sense. Our faith is intelligent. It is rational. And it makes emotional sense. It's experienced. Both logic and emotion is what builds the certainty of faith. Both logic and emotion. Now, in previous sermons on Easter, I have almost exclusively, I think, preached about the reasonable and rational thoughts and really examples and historical data that would back up why our faith is intelligent and is logical and why you can believe it as a fact. I've talked about how there were over 500 witnesses and these witnesses would have been able to either refute the claims of the disciples that Jesus rose bodily from the dead or support it. And what we know from history was that they supported it. I've talked about how the Bible is not written like a myth, not made up to kind of uh, you know, stir the emotions in people or gain some type of following, but rather it's written like a historical document. It's brutally honest. The disciples share about their own failures. They don't make themselves look great. In fact, they even say in the resurrection that many people believe that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. It's not written like a myth. I've talked about the disciples themselves, who all of them gave, all of them suffered a horrible martyr's death. They gave their lives to the message that Jesus died for sin on the cross was buried and raised in bodily form from the dead and ascended into heaven. All of them died a martyr's death, except for one who was exiled. Not much greater. And you may be thinking, yeah, well, people die for lies all the time. You're right. People do die for lies all the time. But people generally do not die for a lie they know they made up, especially large groups of people with no recanting at all, dying for a lie that you created, giving your life to a lie that you created. I've talked about the Apostle Paul, who we know from history gave his life to really killing Christians, imprisoning them, and destroying the church, and then claims to have had this unbelievable, miraculous experience with the risen Christ, was saved on the road to Damascus, and then devoted his entire life to the exact opposite, which was starting and building the church and sharing the message of Jesus. How does that happen? There are so many reasons to believe in the resurrection, to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And I'm not going to talk about all of those tonight. There are many more than what I just shared. But I think it is important that you explore those reasons. You see how our faith makes logical sense whether you are seeking Jesus or maybe you're new to the faith or maybe you've never explored before and you know that that would help actually solidify your faith in Christ and his resurrection. And if that's you, I actually want to make something available tonight. And that is, I want to give you the option to let me know if you'd like to join a small group most likely meet on Zoom, and for a season, I'll lead a Bible study or a book club through some of the logical 
and rational reasons to believe in Christ and the resurrection. And if you're interested in that, just let us know by clicking on the link for the Connect card. Give us your information. Just notate that you want to be a part of that, that Bible study or that book club. Because I'd love to lead it with a few people if there's interest. So let me know if you want to do that. But tonight, instead of looking at the logical sense of our faith, which it is, I want to look at why it makes emotional sense. Why it is experienced and it is meant to stir us emotionally. See, many of us spend our entire lives seeking to increase the experiences of our life in a positive way. So much of our life is spent focusing on things to build a positive experience for life. We want to live a good life, which means we enjoy positive emotions. And so all of the things that we invest in or that we sacrifice for are so that we can have a positive experience in life. Romance, growing in our careers, home ownership, starting a family, going on vacations and making memories, moving to a new city, making wise investments, having a healthy lifestyle, building out a robust and supportive friend group, going to church. All of these things are meant to bring about a positive emotional experience for our lives. It's why we will invest in these things. It's why we will go through adversity in these things to move them to a place where there is enjoyment and happiness. It is how we live. It's how we are wired. And I was reading this quote this week from what has become now a well-known podcaster. He was also a professor at uh, MIT. He may still be a professor at MIT. Uh, Lex Friedman. He's been on the Joe Rogan podcast several times. And he wrote this tweet a few weeks ago, and I, it just it stood out to me. He said this, It's 4 a.m. A cold wind is whirling outside, and I'm in love with the world. Billions of people I'll never get to know. Some I will, some I'll love, and before I'm ready, it'll all be over. Life is amazing. Now, the first time I read that, I thought, wow, that's really good writing. I mean, it's a tweet, but I could picture what he was experiencing, sitting on his balcony or his back porch, cold morning, just thinking, feeling that life was really amazing, thinking about the relationships that he has, the people he's gotten to know, the people he loves, all of those things culminating. See, what's happening for him in that moment is he's having a profound, positive, emotional experience. For him, life makes emotional sense in that moment. There's no logical sense in what he's saying. It makes emotional sense. He senses that in the moment. And after I read that, I thought, okay, but is that it? Is that what life is all about? I mean, I understand that for him, everything felt positive and happy in the moment, and there's a lot of things that culminated to that point, but is that really what life is all about? Is it all about enjoying nature, these small moments, a crisp breeze? Is it about just getting to know new people and loving 
people and establishing some really important relationships? Is it, it's just, it's just kind of about understanding how small you are in the vast nature of the universe and our world? And Is that what makes life amazing? Begin to think, is life about finding hope in this life? Because that's really what he's saying. He's saying, I have found hope in this life. I understand how small I am and the, the nature, 4 a.m., it's cold, the people I got to know and meet. See, there's so many things actually happening behind the scenes that he's not saying or maybe he's not even consciously thinking that have led him to that moment. It's the success in his career to be in that nice apartment or that house on that balcony or patio. It's the relationships that he's thinking about, the people that he's gotten to know and to love. All of these things have kind of come together to make emotional sense for him, that life is amazing. He feels as if in that moment, in that season of his life, it's all clicked. But is that it? Is that what it's about, just finding emotional resonance with the right cocktail of success and relationships and experiences, and it, once you get all of those things together with the right perspective, then you will have this 4 a.m. moment. Is that what life is about? Does that make life amazing? Will that last for a lifetime? I don't think it will. I think you know it won't either, because nobody tweets that if they had a fight with their spouse the night before. Nobody wakes up at 4 a.m. and says, the people I love and life is amazing. Nobody writes that tweet if the day before they got laid off from their job. Nobody tweets that out if they spent all night staying awake because they realize they have not reached their potential. See, you have to have the right cocktail of these things to kind of arrive at a tweet like that and sense that life is amazing. But so many of us, we, we're, we're driven to try to find that cocktail because we're looking for hope in this life. We're trying to find hope in this life, joy in this life, happiness in life, this life, for life to make emotional sense where we can say life is amazing. The Apostle Paul says something really interesting about that in this chapter. Here's what he says in verse 19. He says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's what he's saying. If your faith in Christ leads you to think that you're just to find the right cocktail and the right mixture of all these things that you're seeking out to, to give you a profound, positive, emotional experience in this life only, if you are focused on this life only, if your hope is in generating some type of happiness for this life only, you are of, of all people most to be pitied. Because your faith extends beyond this life. That is what we are celebrating today. That our faith and our hope is not rooted in this life alone. In fact, our faith is that we are made alive in Christ. Yes, we are made alive in Christ now through the Spirit, but we will one day rise too. That our life is eternal. And there is something beyond this life that is fleeting. And what is beyond is not at all fleeting. It is eternal. And it is with the very one who created us. We are made alive with him. You see, if you have hope only for this life, 
The reason the Apostle Paul says you are most to be pitied if you are actually in Christ is because you are missing the profound beauty and emotional resonance of the resurrection. This chapter, he's talking about the resurrection, how it should resonate with you emotion. It should be profoundly deep. It should move you to think beyond this life. To fill you with hope, not because you everything's working in this moment and season in your life, but because you know what is promised you. You know what Christ accomplished for you some 2,000 years ago when he came out of that grave. It should stir you emotionally. I want you to imagine some 2,000 years ago, it's Sunday morning, and there's a friend of Jesus, this woman. She wakes up early in the morning. She has a task at hand. And so she gets a jar of water and a towel, box of spices and perfume. And she begins to walk outside the gates of Jerusalem. She's heading to a small garden. See, she's on her way to anoint the body of Jesus. Her Lord, the one that she followed, the one that she loved, who just three days earlier she saw humiliated, crucified. She's going there to anoint his body with these burial spices and perfume so that it would kind of decrease the smell of the decay that would be taking place. And as was the custom to, to perform this and to, to care for your loved ones after their death. And so she's ready for the task at hand and she's carrying this and she gets to this small garden. She's going back you know, through the garden. She feels the breeze. She hears the birds chirping. It's early in the morning. She looks around the corner of a bush and she sees that the stone in front of the tomb is rolled away. She looks around and she's looking for the soldiers guarding the tomb. Well, they're gone now. She runs over to the tomb. What is, what's happening here? She looks inside. She sees no body. In fact, she just sees a linen cloth on the ground and it has struck her. Somebody has stole the body of Jesus, her friend, her Lord. She drops the pitcher and the water pours over and she falls on the ground and she starts to weep and to cry and she thinks to herself who's done this why would they do this was crucifying him not enough now they're going to desecrate his body the tears are streaming down her face she begins to think to herself what do i do who do i tell first do i tell peter do i tell john now she's there some mess on the dirt of this garden. She hears someone kind of rustling in the plants off to the side, and in the corner of her vision, she sees a man's feet in sandals. She assumes it's the gardener tending to the garden who's come up, heard her, kind of making a scene, crying loudly. And the gardener, in her mind, says to her, hey, why are you crying? She's wiping her tears and she says, they've stolen the body of my Lord. If you've seen anything, have you seen anyone? Did someone come here this morning? What happened? As she says that, she's wiping her face and she begins to look up. And as she looks up, she hears one word. 
Mary. In that moment, she knows it's not a gardener. It's her Lord. She says, teacher, Jesus, it's you. You come back from the dead. You're alive. You are actually who you said you were. Jesus just, I imagine, hugs her and says, yes. Can you imagine the profound emotion stirring in her soul at that moment? Everything flooding her mind. Wait, he was who he said he was. He promised that he would come back from the dead. He did. Sin has been defeated. My shame and my guilt has been done away with. Death is over. I'm made alive. He's alive. All of this emotion stirring deep in her soul at the knowledge and belief in the resurrection. See, that type of emotion is what the resurrection should cause in you, not just Mary. She had the privilege of being the first person to see the resurrected Savior. But He's your resurrected Savior too. He calls your name too. It should stir you emotionally. It should move you. Have you ever asked the question, why does Christianity speak about its central figure in Jesus and its central message, Son of God, born of a virgin, lived the perfect life, died for our sins, was buried and resurrected? Why does it share the central story, the central message, and the central figure in the form of story? It's not just explaining some things and then giving you the theological meat and substance of what the Christian faith believes. It's told through story, through adversity, through success, through the failure of the disciples, through all the people that rejected and those that believed, healings, miracles. It's all told in story. In fact, Jesus himself, when he shares theological substance, theological meat, he does it in story. In parable. Why? Because the Christian faith is meant to stir you emotionally and stories move us emotionally. Our faith is not only logical, though it is. It is emotional. It is to be experienced too. We're to think and to believe rationally, logically, to have reason in our faith. Yes, but we're also to experience it. To be emotionally moved. It should make emotional sense. Our faith is not dead. It is not cold. It is alive. The resurrection should move you to sense that. To know that. To proclaim that. To not have hope in this life. The resurrection tells you your hope is eternal. To move you and to stir you emotionally that it may resonate. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 51, verse 51 of chapter, of ch- chapter 15. This is the type of emotion, the type of language that should stir you. He says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, he's speaking about death, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. I love that line. This mortal body shall put on immortality. See, the celebration of the resurrection that we do every Easter, but we do every Sunday, is that this mortal body, through faith in Christ, will put on immortality. We don't have hope in this life only. We have hope in the life to come that actually fuels us and gives us joy in this life despite its circumstances. We, are, we have put on immortality through Christ. That's a mystery, but it's a beautiful mystery that we cling to. He goes on. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The resurrection reminds you and it reminds me that our mortal bodies will put on immortality. That this perishable life and this perishable body will fade, but because of the resurrection, we are made alive. We are imperishable. And that death has been swallowed up. I love that language. Swallowed up in victory. It no longer stings because it is no longer true of us. Yes, our mortal bodies will die. We will perish. But we put on immortality through faith in Christ. That is not just a logical thing that you can ascertain through the facts and through history by seeing that the resurrection is in fact reasonable and rational, which it is, but it is something that should stir you emotionally. How good of a gift the resurrection is. But it's challenging, right? I want to acknowledge that. It's challenging to be a mortal creature and to believe that through the resurrection of Christ, we are going to put on immortality. That we're made alive in Christ. And that Christ actually did rise from the dead. It's challenging. How do you receive it? How are you to receive Easter Sunday? You may say, um, we're, to believe it, right? Yes, to believe it. But belief is a funny thing. When does belief start? Does belief in God, in Christ, in the resurrection, does that start when you feel it? Does it start when you investigate? Does it start when you feel mentally settled? Does it start when you, you feel as if you found that faith that person in Christ that has filled the hole in your life that you've been trying to fill with so many other things? Where does belief start? Is it when it makes logical sense? Or is it when it makes emotional sense? Where does it start? I don't really know. It's a mystery. But I do know this. I know that our faith, that belief in Christ and the resurrection, requires logical sense and emotional sense you cannot have one and not the other it requires logical sense and emotional sense that culminates in you letting go 
you falling into mystery. The mystery of the mortal body one day putting on immortality because of the resurrection of Christ. The mystery that death is swallowed up in victory because of Christ. That it no longer stings. It culminates in you letting go. And there's great hope in that. Because listen, you may think, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. In fact, that's the very thing that's keeping me from faith. It's just that letting go, that the logical and the emotional sense kind of converging. It's hard for me. Let me tell you something. You do not only entertain emotions that you can prove. If you only entertained emotions that you can prove, you wouldn't be a human being. You'd be like Spock from Star Trek. You're not only logical and you're not only emotional. You must be both. You must listen to both. Your faith makes emotional sense and logical sense. And where it should lead you to is to say, I'm going to let go, God. You're God, I'm not. I'm going to let go and fall into the mystery and the beauty of the resurrection. I believe that it's a fact. I've been watching some of the old school Pixar and Disney movies with the family recently, and we watched Finding Nemo. Great movie if you haven't seen it before. There's this scene in Finding Nemo that, that captured my attention. Marlon, Nemo's dad, is with Dory. And they're on a search to find Nemo. And as they're going, they get swallowed up by a whale. And inside of the whale's mouth, they try to, to push through the whale's mouth, but they can't because the whale's mouth is closed shut. And they're holding on to the, the taste buds of the whale inside the mouth. And Marlin, the dad, is convinced that the whale wants to eat them because they're fish and the whale eats fish. And Dory, as they're holding on, she tells Marlin that she speaks whale. He doesn't believe her. He thinks that she's insane. And, and, and she says, the whale says let go. You've got to let go and go in the back of, of his throat. He's telling us to let go and go in the back of the throat. And Marlon's like, are you crazy? Of course he wants us to let go and go in the back of the throat because he wants to eat us. That's what whales do. And so he's holding on and the whale begins to flush the water out of his mouth. And now there's no water for them. And as fish, they're slowly dying as they're holding on. But yet Marlon thinks that the only way to survive is to hold on. And ultimately, Dory looks at him and says, you have to let go. She lets go and falls back, and Marlon, with really no other choice, it doesn't make any logical sense to him, he lets go. And he falls back, and all of a sudden you see in the next scene that the whale shoots Marlon and Dory out of the blowhole, and they're saved. Let go. You see, there are times in life where logical sense and emotional sense converge. That's where there's belief in something. When you find the person that you're going to marry, or if you are married, I would hope that there was logical sense and there was emotional sense that converged to say, this is the person I'm supposed to be with. And you let go. And you took a step into that lifelong commitment. You see, belief in God, belief in faith, 
Faith in Christ and the resurrection is where logical sense and emotional sense converge together and where you let go. You let go of all the things that are keeping you from faith in Christ, all the things you're like, well, not until this, not until that. I still got to work to know. I'm going to let go. They've converged. You let go of all the things keeping you from experiencing God in an emotional way where you've just made it kind of this cold thing. You let go of all the things that you're trying to do in your life to build hope in your life because you have hope for this life only and you realize that is futile. I'm going to be pitied if I live like that. I'm going to let go of that. See the resurrection fresh today. Because listen, the very things that you may be holding on to may be the very things that are killing you. You have to let go. Let go and fall into grace let go and fall into the mystery and the beauty of the resurrection that you are made alive. That your faith is something that should stir you emotionally to celebrate and to sing and to share. Let go. I want to close by sharing a very interesting account of the resurrection. In Mark's Gospel, after Jesus is arrested, there's this very peculiar statement that really gives no context. Jesus is arrested. The disciples have abandoned Jesus. They've run away cowardly. And we read this account. It says this in Mark chapter 14, verse 51 and 52. And a young man followed him. That is Jesus. With nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, see, thinking that he was with Jesus. They seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. See, what's happening here, and Mark is being, being very purposeful. This man was a follower of Jesus, kind of scoping it out. And they're trying to see who are the supporters of Jesus. And they seize him, and he does not want to be connected to Jesus. He doesn't want to face any of the things that Jesus is facing, certainly. So he flees. He takes off his linen, and he runs away naked. Now, nakedness in this culture was a sign of shame. So he chooses his own shame over fidelity to Christ. Fast forward to the next chapter. Jesus has been crucified. He is now dead, and he is wrapped in linen cloth. It's the only other time in Mark's gospel that linen cloth is mentioned on this young boy, this young man, that's ripped off and now wrapped on Jesus' body. Now we go to the next chapter where we see three women that go to the tomb after the third day of Jesus being buried. They arrive there, the stone is rolled away, and they look inside and Jesus is gone. There's no body but there's a messenger there or an angel. And Mark describes this messenger as a young man. Same language as the one who ran away naked. And he makes it a point to share about his clothes. He says he's wearing a glorious white robe. He's wearing a glorious white robe. Now, is this the same young man 
wearing the white robe that fleed naked? Not necessarily, but what Mark is doing is using a literary device here to share something with you about the resurrection, to impact you emotionally as you read about this. Here's what he is saying. The shame of your failure has been done away with. You are now clothed in the glorious robe of Jesus' success. You may have been running away from Jesus your whole life. You may have been fleeing. You may have been following closely. If you get too close, too many eyes are on you, you're out. The shame of the failure of your life, whatever it may be, has now been exchanged for the glorious robe of Christ and His resurrection. See, that is what you are wearing on Easter. As we always think about, what am I going to wear on Easter? Here's what you're really wearing. You're wearing a robe of forgiveness, a robe of love, a robe of joy, a robe of hope. You are wearing the robe of the righteousness of Christ. A robe that says, you know what? I'm going to be made alive. I'm made alive in Christ now, and my life is not just about this. I have hope for eternity. Let that resonate with my soul. That is what you are wearing this Easter. And that robe that you're wearing today has an imprint on it. So on the inside, here's what it says. Chapter 15, verse 56. It reads this. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what is imprinted on the robe that you wear. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God because He gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is a day of victory. It is a day for you to shout, for you to sing, for you to be stirred emotionally. Your hope is in Christ. Your faith is in Christ. You find love in Christ. You wear the glorious robe of His success regardless of the failures that you've experienced and will experience in the future. That is what you are wearing this Easter church through faith. That makes logical sense, yes. But I hope today it makes emotional sense that profoundly stirs your soul because you're loved by God and Jesus proved it to you 2,000 years ago when He came out of that grave. And I want to invite you tonight, if you maybe felt like that young man who's been kind of looking at Jesus from afar, get too close, run away, to let go. To let go. To allow emotional sense and logical sense to converge and to say, I'm going to let go because I, I recognize the very things that I've been holding on to in my life may be the very things killing me. Let go. I, I love our God who says that the way that we let go is just through coming to Him and acknowledging our surrender. That's what faith is. It's surrender. You don't have to have all the words. It doesn't have to be eloquent. It could be in your house, it could be in your car, it could be at the beach, it could be wherever you want to be. God is everywhere. He is near you and He is listening to you. He invites you in. The mystery and the beauty of faith. So I want to pray.
and invite you to pray with me, to let go, to experience God either in a fresh way for the first time tonight because He is here and He loves you and His resurrection is for you to be made alive in Him, to find hope. So will you pray with me? God, our Father, confess that I have run away from You many times. I have been looking in and felt too close, uncomfortable, and I've run away. I've been holding to things, thinking it would build a good life for me. But these things may, in fact, be killing me, harming my life. I pray, God, that I don't seek to find hope in this life alone. Tonight I acknowledge you, eternal hope. I surrender my life to you. I believe in the beauty, the mystery of your death and resurrection, that death is defeated, the sting of death and sin is no more. I believe in you as my Savior, Jesus, and my Lord. I pray that I would experience you close tonight. Holy Spirit, stir my heart emotionally. May the resurrection make emotional sense for me today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.